Hello, this is Helga Edwards, and I'm here with my husband, Bob. Today, we will be reading Genesis chapter 46, verses 1 to 7, and verses 26 to 34 from the Berean Study Bible. Beginning at verse 1. So Israel set out with all that he had, and when he came to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And that night God spoke to Israel in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he said. Here I am, replied Jacob. I am God, he said, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you back. And Joseph's own hands will close your eyes. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel took their father Jacob in the wagons Pharaoh had sent to carry him, along with their children and wives. They also took the livestock and possessions they had acquired in the land of Canaan. And Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. Jacob took with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. All those belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, besides the wives of Jacob's sons, numbered sixty-six persons. And with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family who went to Egypt were seventy in all. Now Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When Jacob's family arrived in the land of Goshen, Joseph prepared his chariot and went there to meet his father Israel. Joseph presented himself to him, embraced him, and wept profusely. Then Israel said to Joseph, Finally I can die, now that I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and inform Pharaoh, my brothers and my father's household from the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, they raise livestock, and they have brought their flocks and herds and all that they own. When Pharaoh summons you and asks, what is your occupation, you are to say, your servants have raised livestock ever since our youth, both we and our fathers. Then you will be allowed to settle in the land of Goshen since all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Here ends our reading of Genesis chapter 46. In this passage, we see the man named Israel finally reunited with his son Joseph. Israel and all of his offspring, sons, grandsons, daughters and granddaughters, are all welcomed by Joseph to take refuge in Egypt during a time of terrible famine. Joseph would like his family to be allowed to settle in the land of Goshen, a fertile area that was ideal for livestock, somewhat removed from where most Egyptians made their homes. To accomplish this end, Joseph advised his father and brothers to tell Pharaoh that they were shepherds, since all shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians. In the Greek Septuagint, the word used to describe the Egyptians' view of shepherds is used again to describe the abomination of desolation that would one day desecrate God's temple in Jerusalem. This is found in Daniel 9 verse 27. 
The strong language used by Joseph here begs the question, why were shepherds viewed with such loathing by the Egyptians? The work of A.H. Sayce, founding member of the Society of Biblical Archaeology, provides some insight. Sayce explains that ancient Egyptians worshipped a pantheon of gods represented by various animals. It was not simply the case that the animals were symbols of the gods. It was believed that the gods might actually inhabit one of these specifically selected animals. Such an animal could be identified by specific markings. This understanding of ancient Egyptian belief can help us understand not just Genesis 46:34, but also similar verses like Genesis 43:32 and Exodus 8:26. In Genesis 43:32, we see that eating with Hebrews was detestable to the Egyptians, and in Exodus 8:26, we find that Hebrew sacrifices were similarly abhorred. In the eyes of ancient Egyptians, Hebrews could be guilty of actually eating Egyptian gods. Worse still, they might sacrifice an Egyptian god to the invisible God of Israel. As a result of this difference in religious belief, the Hebrew race was segregated from the broader Egyptian population. They were not permitted to live among Egyptians, eat with them, or worship in their midst. This may have provided a temporary benefit to Jacob and his family in that they wished to live by themselves in Goshen. But in a few generations, racial segregation would be followed by racial slavery. Rather than recognizing racial segregation and slavery as offensive examples of prejudice and injustice, some Bible commentators, historically and today, have used passages like Genesis 46:34 to reinforce their own prejudiced belief that God created certain people groups to be subordinate to others based on race or gender. Writing in the 1600s, prominent theologian Matthew Henry had this to say in his commentary on Genesis 46:34. Quote, it is generally best for people to abide in the callings they have been bred to and used to. Whatever employment and condition God in his providence has allotted for us, let us suit ourselves to it, satisfy ourselves with it, and not mind high things. End of quote. Racial segregation and social subordination are wrongly depicted by Henry as God's will. Unfortunately, Henry had similar things to say about women. In his New Testament commentary work on 1 Timothy 2.12, he concluded that God made women subordinate to men. He only advised that Christian men exercise their alleged power over women with kindness. Understood in its original language and context, 1 Timothy 2.12 does not advocate the subordination of one sex to another. It confronts an early form of Gnosticism that was being propagated by a group of teachers that evidently included at least one Ephesian woman. For those interested in studying this subject further, 
Bob and I explore Paul's originally intended message in 1 Timothy in our book entitled The Equality Workbook, Freedom in Christ from the Oppression of Patriarchy. Sadly, some modern-day Bible commentators reference Matthew Henry's work to rationalize their own racist views. As recently as 2019, for example, Confederate apologist Mike Scruggs penned an article that he called A Biblical Perspective on Slavery. In it, he references Matthew Henry's commentary, referring to it as, quote, still one of the most trusted Bible commentaries, unquote. In keeping with Matthew Henry's view of social hierarchies as an expression of God's will, Scruggs claims that in the Bible, quote, slave owners and overseers are not counted as villains or moral lawbreakers unless they significantly mistreat or abuse their slaves, unquote. In other words, in Scruggs' mind, it was not unchristian to own slaves. A Christian slave owner, like Christian men in the mind of Matthew Henry, would only need to rule over persons of another race or gender with kindness. In another article, Scruggs further defends the Confederacy of the American Civil War by claiming that Confederate states did not secede from the Federal Union on account of slavery. His claims fly in the face of the Confederate Constitution, which promised, quote, no bill or law denying or impairing the right of property in Negro slaves shall be passed." Unquote. Alexander Stevens, Vice President of Confederate States, provided the following rationale for this promise. Quote, the Negro is not equal to the white man. Slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. Unquote. Alexander misrepresented one of Jesus' parables to critique the northern view that all races were created equal by God. He said this belief was a, quote, sandy foundation and the government built upon it fell when the storm came and the wind blew, unquote. Jesus was, of course, in no way talking about slavery in his parable. Here are Jesus' words, quoted accurately, and in context. Quote, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the torrents raged, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the torrents raged, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its collapse. And that's found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Those who hear Jesus' words, but do not put them into practice, are like those who build a house on sand. Does Jesus talk to his followers about social hierarchies? Yes, in fact he does. In Matthew 20, verses 25 to 26, he says, quote, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their superiors exercise authority over them. It shall not be this way among you. Unquote. 
And again in Matthew 23, verses 10 to 12, Jesus says, quote, Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, and that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Unquote. Jesus did not want his followers seeking power and status over others. Echoing the same concept, the Apostle Paul tells followers of Jesus in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Unquote. Faith in Christ is meant to be the great equalizer. Unfortunately, church leaders today who refer to themselves as complementarian don't see it that way. When I was teaching a class at Bible College, I remember the pastor of a complementarian church telling me that Galatians 3.28 applies only to salvation. In other words, although women and men may equally have their sins forgiven because of Christ's sacrifice, this is not meant to erase social hierarchies based on gender. The same defense was used by numerous Confederate pastors who sought to defend the institution of racial slavery. Is it really true, however, that oneness in Christ is not meant to change the way human beings relate to each other? No, this is not true. Our faith in Christ is meant to transform our thinking, our behavior, and our relationships. This is why Roman officials who persecuted Christians discovered that even women who were slaves in the Roman Empire served as deacons in the Christian church. And we find an account of this in the letters of Pliny the Younger, who was born in 61 AD. This is also why the Apostle Paul rebuked Peter in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 13, which read, quote, When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter would not eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Unquote. Since Jew and Gentile are one in Christ, Jewish believers should have been free to eat with their Gentile brothers and sisters. According to the tradition of some Jewish rabbis, it was forbidden for Jewish people to share meals with non-Jewish people, referred to as Gentiles. Gentiles were uncircumcised and ate food that Jews considered forbidden. This rabbinical tradition is an exact parallel of the ancient Egyptian refusal to eat alongside Jews. In both cases, one people group was viewed as spiritually unclean for their eating habits, and these habits were divided along racial lines. In other words, both situations are examples of racial segregation. Paul called the Apostle Peter a hypocrite for practicing this type of prejudice. Why? Because in Christ, people of every race and gender are equal and our behavior as followers of Jesus Christ must accurately reflect this belief.